every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello, and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This episode features an interview with Morgan Norman. Morgan is the CMO of Dialpad, a cloud-based business phone system that turns conversations into opportunities. Prior to Dialpad, Morgan was the Global Vice President of Corporate Brand and Growth Marketing at Ring Central. From 2015 to 2017, Morgan led go-to-market and global marketing as CMO of Dialpad, and prior to that, he held marketing executive roles at Copper, Zora, NetSuite, and Microsoft. On this episode, Morgan exposes some of the challenges of marketing artificial intelligence products, how he and his team come up with new marketing ideas, and why it's important to take cues from B2C marketing and implement it for B2B. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com. If you are a B2B marketer who has always dreamed of knowing when a qualified prospect is on your site and being able to talk to them instantly, now you can. Learn more at Qualified.com. So please enjoy this interview between Morgan Norman, CMO of Dialpad, and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. And today I am joined by a special guest, Morgan. How are you? I am fantastic, Ian. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited. Yeah, super excited to have you on the show. Excited to chat Dialpad, uh, which is a really awesome and cool company that uh, I've had the privilege to chat with your your CEO a few times, and, and it's great to chat with you today. So let's get into it. How'd you get started in demand? So I actually originally started as an SDR. So um, I was actually making phone calls. It was brutal. And I moved quickly into field marketing. A lot of the tools in marketing didn't even work. Uh, so they gave us these packets and they would mail them out. And it, it basically was an epic failure. Uh, so I started creating materials on my own. And so field marketing back then became demand gen. And then luckily, I was on the forefront of marketing automation and demand gen. I was actually the third or fourth customer of Eloqua. And over time, field marketing then becomes demand gen. It becomes very digital. And lo and behold, many years later, uh, I'm still doing it today. So that's like a 20-year run in demand gen, yeah. I love that. Those those early field marketing days, uh, has it changed that much? I mean, we'll get into that later. Um, <laughs> yeah, not so much. That's the scary Is part. Is that right? Yeah. That's too funny. Um, people don't have business cards now. <laughs> so as I mentioned, Dialpad, really cool company. Can you share a little bit about who Dialpad is, who your customers are? Yeah. So, I mean, you talked, you, you mentioned you talked to our CEO, Craig. So Dialpad in the simplest ways, it's a business communication platform. It's built by the original people who built Google Voice. So the technology is impeccable. And what we offer is a suite of products versus just one product for communication. So we have a business phone system, we have messaging, we have video meetings, which we just rebranded from Uber conference to Dialpad meetings. And we also have contact center and sales coaching and conversational coaching, which is all based off AI. So it's a giant platform. It works for actually, whether you're a solopreneur to the biggest companies like Uber uh, out there in the world. So every segment we touch. And I know a bunch of Dialpad stuff because again, a long, long favorite for me. I, I was an Uber conference user for many years. And I think one of the 
one of the growth hackiest fun marketing things was the uh the uber conference hold music uh where it was this this funky song and then you could also rickroll people and, and do all that sort of stuff so a long history of cool marketing at dialpad and we're going to get into uh, a bunch of that here today so let's go to our first segment the trust treat with the knowledge you've been given you are now on the inside of what i like to call the circle of trust what i thought we were in the trust tree with in the nest are we not this is where you go to feel honest and trusted and share those deepest darkest demand gen secrets taking a step back what do you feel like is your demand gen uh, and marketing strategy well we have an interesting model at dialpad so it's a little bit bifurcated so we have um a product-led growth or plg model which is uber conference our video meetings and then we have an smb segment model which is like, how do we acquire things very quickly and slam them through a velocity sales team? And then we have a traditional field and upsells model. So each one of those has very different tactics across the board. I'm gonna start with the basic ones and just kind of check those off. From an SMB side, we're doing standard acquisition models, everything from heavy organic you know, content, thought leadership, paid social, and giving a lot of money to Google. On the field side, you know, we get, you know, and it's not always this way today, but we get a lot into field events, VIP events, really ABM specific motions, uh, and a lot of retargeting. Another area in that from a demand perspective is a newer motion we're really igniting here at Dialpad, which is really uh, install-based marketing, which is a little bit different than lifecycle, but really going after that expansion and cross-sell. But now back to the top, which is product-led growth. And this is actually, you mentioned Uber conference. So we have one of these unique advantages where we have a product that's used by millions and millions of users a month and does billions of interactions. So we also focus on how can we leverage that product to seed the rest of the suite. So you might come in and try a free product of meetings and then eventually try Dialpad Talk, or you might actually move into our contact center or Dialpad Cell product. And so... You know, your your customers, um, the the folks that you're selling to, what does that sales cycle kind of look like? You di- you diagrammed it a little bit there, um, but but how does how does your marketing uh, and demand fit into sales? So we have a, a couple different strategies on how demand uh, fits into our sales organization. The first aspect is we actually run a growth marketing organization. So it's just not not necessarily just about life cycle, it's actually running the revenue. And that actually sits with marketing and is a no-touch organization. And then we actually have a traditional organization which is doing acquisition and demand for SMB and up market. Each one of those strategies across those functional groups is very different. When you look at the growth marketing side of demand, they're looking at hacking actually usage and seeing if they can tie that usage into revenue. They're also seeing what campaigns will drive the fastest usage and that usage will drive the fastest expansion. So it gets really, really complex. And they're trying to figure out what can I get the first user to do and then users, you know, users number two, three, and four. When you get into the SMB model, marketing into SMBs is really hard. It's actually very expensive. You always don't know where to look. They're kind of everywhere. It's every business you can imagine. Um, So we do the traditional methods, but a lot of it is really focused on now is heavy organic. And that organic is actually non-brand specific to use cases and roles and industries. Um, And that's the only way you can offset the arbitrage of of Google because your costs just go through the roof eventually. And then upmarket, it's pretty easy. You know, I'd love to say that upmarket, it's like, it's so complex, but there's so many tools in ABM. 
If you really can afford all those tools and you can afford to spend for an experimentation and you have the right staff, you're going to crack it over time. If you, if you can actually test a lot of your messaging on digital. So we break down our teams that way. We actually have some other marketing teams, obviously in brand. We obviously have product marketing teams, but that's the core demand functions that's broken down into those areas. Okay, let's go to our next segment, the playbook. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. This is where you open up that playbook and talk about the tactics that help you win. What are three channels and tactics that are your uncuttable budget items? Oh, man, you're making me do this. Uh, You know, marketers, we love to spend and we're so greedy at times. I mean, so you're making this one really difficult. Um, And it's a COVID. so, So these are ones I can't cut, right? These are ones I have to keep. Uncuttable. Uncuttable. Well, I have to be honest with you is like in our business... Um, it's a race for the communication space. So we have to keep our paid motions in place. So a lot of those dollars are going to go straight out to Google. That's that's kind of a, a non-starter. The next thing that I would never cut, and I think actually the majority of demand gen spend, uh, if, you, if you're, your next tier down is going to be organic SEO and content. You could actually say thought leadership fits into that. I really believe ultimately that that's, you know, probably 35, 40% of your investment should go into that in the future. That's what I think is going to happen. An area that, you know, and this is controversial, but you have to stay active with the field. You have to give the field areas to engage. And for us right now, it is some digital events, believe it or not. And those are not, you know, hey, I want to do a webinar. It's VIP, very specific VIP events that is going to help deal acceleration and help also align some prospects with some customers or some partners that way as well. Diving into the first one, uh, into Google, you know, it's definitely the most popular uh, uncuttable budget item. We hear it a lot. It does feel like it's pretty non-negotiable. Do you feel like that is because of where people fit in the in the funnel or the customer journey and where they're engaging with that? Is it because it's so targeted that it's non-negotiable? Because like you said, you're in a competitive space. There's a lot of people vying for this stuff. So it can get really, really pricey. Yeah, it's such a great question. And, and I've, you know, one of my biggest challenges, this is going into another areas, is getting off that paid drug and getting into other drugs in marketing. And the challenge that I've seen, and I've run into this almost at every company, is that they always over-index in a couple areas that they're strong at. And then ultimately, the price you're paying is you're giving money back into this paid area. So my gut with, with paid is it's a non-negotiable because it gives you information quickly, but I don't think it's as effective as people think it is. Interesting. I think it's actually that other stuff takes a little bit longer, but if you had the time for some of those channels to mature, you might actually invest more in those other areas. So let me give you a a prime use case of that. An example is just organic. A lot of people didn't invest in content until now, right? And then once they invest in content, they're like, oh, why didn't we spend more here? That's an example of a, a, a lagging indicator. So I think another one is brand. Some people over-index in brand and say, hey, you know, we're going to spend a lot on brand and it's eventually going to pay off. Whatever your bet is, and some people say, no, we're a sales-driven organization and it's all going to be field-driven. Whatever it is, it's typically always over-indexed in one. And then the price you pay is go back to paid. When that doesn't work, that's your fallback plan. So, but there are other areas where it's very transactional. But the question is, can that, trans- can that uh, a profitability model work for you over time? And it eventually reaches breakpoints unless you unless you tune. 
It's absolutely fascinating. And I love the way that you said that. I think that there's so many digital channels that the reason why we love them is it gives us so much feedback so quickly. You can be the most data-driven marketer. And I think that, you know, this is, this is probably a, a controversial take, but I think that you know, I think every single marketer, obviously this is not controversial, that every single marketer has to be a data-driven marketer, but there is part of you that's like, it is like this funnel, funnel, uh, metric stuff is a little bit easier, right? It's like you continue to, you dump money in, you, you iterate, you change, you put different copy in, you iterate, you iterate, you iterate, you iterate, and you get to the point where it's like, okay, we're extremely effective at putting coins in, the into the casino right and we know if we're going to put in you know 25 cents that we're going to get 50 cents back but like you said none of those things to use the vc analogy could return the whole fund right you couldn't do one activation that you spend 10 grand on that brings you back five million dollars in business and i think that that's kind of the mix that i think is is missing sometimes and so you mentioned 30 to 40 percent on content do you think that that's in line with other marketers, or do you think that's pretty far off? No, I don't. I don't. And it's something that, you know, I'm always aspiring to. You know, just as a marketer, you know, we're always borrowing. Like, we're borrowing, cheating, stealing from everyone out there in the market. And I think that's good and bad. I mean, it's good you can use the patterns from someone else, but the bad part is you're also not always coming up with your own unique ideas, right? And if you're a marketer, you're a pretty badass creative person. I would just say in general, that's why you're here. That's why the world puts you there. I would say on the content side, the reason why is a lot of these companies just, there's just too many tools, there's too many agencies, there's too many ways to hack Google. And there's, and a lot of these categories are already shaped, right? So for you to take an advantage, and if you're gonna break into one of these B2B categories, you're gonna be in a world of hurt over time on paid. It's just gonna happen. But the other interesting thing is, is like, you know, there's a great group called Winning by Design we've worked with before, and they have this bow tie funnel that I love. The thing that I that they schooled me on many years ago was just focus on how fast things expand. So it's not, you know, Google will tell you, oh, you got a transaction, but really look at that expansion. How fast does it expand? How engaged are they? Are they, you know, are they using your product all the time or are they kind of like a nascent user? And then you're going to change your tactics. What's interesting about organic is you can go after specific personas. It's going to help you perfect your messaging. It's also going to help you do category shaping, which is what I'm more interested in. And if you don't do that, you're always following someone, right? And you go, no, no, that's not true. It's just a simple blog. Everything is baited. Everything's repeatedly baited. And what you'll notice is actually, if you really go after something, you can make an entire industry react to you. I've seen it time and time again. They'll just, oh, oh wait, I need to do that too. It's FOMO. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's so funny that you say that, right? I have a favorite uh, campaign that's out right now uh, that by our good buddy, Scott at ThoughtSpot, they just did a campaign called Dashboards Are Dead. And I love it. It's a great campaign. So shout out to Scott. We love you, buddy. And their CEO has written about basically like a bunch of people hitting up all their all their customers being like basically responding to this this ad campaign that they've done. And I was thinking about that as it relates to SEO versus content versus things like this versus paid ads. When you think about it and you're like, nobody would be searching our dashboards dead unless you put the idea out there, right? And right? And like that's that's kind of where you look at this stuff where you say, okay, if search is 
what people are, you know, looking for to solve their problems and their pains and their, and competitor analysis and all those other things in order to actually do the inception level marketing of putting the thoughts into their mind to do category creation, which we can get into here in a second, you have to have a stance, you have to have a stake and you have to put out a volume of assets and a message that is going to achieve those ends. So it's so funny you use that term, the inception, planting the seed in someone's mind. I literally use that over and over when I'm talking to marketers. And I also use another example, which we do in marketing is say, don't feed the monster, right? So if you have something you're really against and you keep going, yes, yes, or you keep doing it, you're feeding a monster that eventually is going to just eat you, right? So I love, I, I actually think, you know, I think because we're in SaaS and there's so many playbooks, we're hesitant on these big risk items. Like, you know, dashboards are dead. I bet there's a bunch of people drove by and be like, what the hell are you talking about? Dashboards are dead. What am I going to do with it? But it's controversial, right? That's what's in the news. I mean, it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant kind of controversial statement. What I do feel though is that, you know, and I'm I'm kind of I'll be the one person that probably falls on the sword here is that a lot of the tactics are pretty boring now. You know, you're just like, look, this is how you run an engine. You're like, okay, I'll run an engine. I'll tune it here. Move this ad. This pattern works. You know, you have so much data behind it. But then in the end, you know, what is your skill set as a marketer in demand gen? And demand gen is brand. Demand gen is storytelling. If they can't insert themselves into that story that they want to partner and be roommates with you for the next three to five years, you're not doing your job. It's not just a bunch of metrics. It's like, it's that vision saying, wait, do I, do I even need dashboards? Actually, I'm not sure I do all the time. You know, so that's kind of what's interesting. But I do think we need to be much more creative in marketing, especially in SaaS. And I think B2C, I don't understand why we haven't pivoted all the way into like these B2C marketing moves, because some of it is just like, I mean, they're like gangster moves. You're just like, no one would do that. You know, the thing that I say all the time on this show is, you know, that marketing is is meant to be remarkable. And when you're remarkable, that means you actually have to tell someone else. Like that means you have to tell your spouse about the thing you saw. That means you have to tell your boss about the thing you saw. And I feel like Dashboards is Dead is, is kind of one of those conversation starters, which is like, you know, you talk to your pal and you're like, you know, I'm staring, I've been staring at Dashboards for the past 20 years of my life. And I'm like, kind of over that, like there, is there something better? You know, like, the, but that that's where you get to be thought provoking if you're making boring stuff, no one is talking about it. Now, obviously, there's a whole digital motion that you need to have that is boring, that captures the value that you're creating. But the value creating stuff is um, is the stuff that you got to work on. So what do you, you know, you you think some of the stuff out there is boring. What are some of the things that, that you uh, want to be investing in from a creative standpoint? How do you think about this like category creation, category design type work? I'll give you a sentence that I always talk to Craig about, and Craig's our CEO at Dialpad. My job is to make you uncomfortable. <laughs> and that's the one advantage of working with a really open CEO is they're willing to go there and you're going to have very difficult dialogues, but you have to hold your ground, right? So the first thing that I would say is that if the campaign doesn't make you uncomfortable, you know, you're like, should I say that? Should I not? Does it work? It probably doesn't have as much legs as you think. It's probably good. It's going to function, but it's not, you know, it's not going to be something that that pivots a space or not. When I look at category shaping, and I'll, I'll just use the example from Dialpad, the original one that launched us in there, which was the Kill the Desk Phone campaign. Yep. And um, that campaign was really controversial because the words we used, people called and said, 
Why are you using the word kill in a billboard? But ultimately what it did is everyone in the space took desk phones off their front page of the website. Yep. And so, the, so, and we were obviously really early on work from anywhere. So on category shaping, what I'm most interested in is I want to right the wrongs of any industry. And every industry, you know, has, you know, good guys and bad gals, right? If you will. And what I mean by the wrongs is, is from a user perspective. Users are not enjoying the product. It's not helping them become more productive. The pricing's a little draconian. You know, the sellers, you're like, you know, they're forced in a bad position and you can't get out of these contracts. Like all those wrongs, it's across all of SaaS. We go, SaaS is so amazing. Okay, please. It's no different than on-premise. It's just a different version. So when I look at the kind of categories now, categories now are shaping more where end users are in control, especially with work from home. And they need to be empowered to be more productive. It's not about the ROI for the IT, where IT feels good, but everyone else hates it. And to do that, you have to kind of pick a couple pillars you go after. Now, I've done this at a couple companies. We did this at Zora when we were first shifting businesses to subscriptions. That was a big move. And Teen had a brilliant idea around the subscription economy, but it didn't mean anything to anyone originally. So, so this is where the category shaping changes is. Someone has to be able to tell the story without you being in the room. And that's like, I saw this movie, it applies to me. I was in outer space, you gotta see it, you know, blah, blah, blah. But that's the gap with most marketing campaigns. And that's the gap with most sales decks as well, is they can't tell the story after you're gone. Well then what's the point, right? So we're all storytellers, we all wanna be part of those. So I actually really believe if you can get people to tell these type of stories without you being there, you can shape a category and kind of figure out a better way of doing business. Who was great at this? Salesforce is obviously the pioneer of shaping categories and, and has, has been using the same playbook forever. And then you can go on to enforcing it, you know, the tactics there, yeah. Well, yeah, and and, and to the the thing that you mentioned with Zora and, and Teen, and I've interviewed Teen about it yeah. as well. I mean, you know, the subscription economy thing, I would argue, I'm, I like, I read Subscribed. I, you know, I listened, I love their, shout out to Kyle, who was on this podcast. They have, they have some awesome killer marketing and, and all that stuff. But I think that's one of those things where that's a classic case where when you're tired of saying something is probably when other people are starting to hear it. I mean, I think the the vast majority of people still have no idea what the subscription economy is. There's a vast majority of products that absolutely should be subscription. There's a vast majority of products that don't have, that don't even have a D2C capacity, you know, like people who have, who are still selling their products on store shelves in Walmart and that's it. So, and, and the reason why I bring that up is like, it's not fun to, to market the same campaign for 20 years. Right. But it's like, until the market catches up, you gotta, you have to keep, you know, keep pounding the table if that's what you believe in the future. You know, it's, it's a tough lesson when you learn those things. That's something actually that team did teach me where he's like, you know, we're going to say this boring thing over and over. You know, my part of that journey was actually to give it a framework that people could tell the story. And what people don't know is how it actually really pivoted was a keynote. So a lot of this thing, like as marketers, if you're working through like your investor decks, your sales decks, that actually is your category creation. You're already doing it. You're just not pushing it out as gutsy. You know, Teen's really gutsy. He's like, we're going to do an event. We're going to do this. But at the same point, though, is then we put it into sales decks. And obviously that got its own hype on its own. Um, and then it had visuals where someone could tell the story. It's, it's designed like a keynote. That's how we designed it. So, but but I want to kind of say a couple things. Is one is that in my experience in doing category shaping and shifting things, 
it typically comes to you in a smaller group if you workshop it. I think if you look at a startup and they have the right product, and hopefully they have a PLG model, so they have a product-led growth model, they have a great freemium operation, you can shape the category through a lot of different areas, your life cycle marketing, you could shape it through nurtures, you could shape it through little touches, you could shape it through social, and eventually you can you can move it. But it only takes one, one thing to make it kick, and everyone's got that. So you mentioned that we need to be taking some cues from uh, B2C. And I totally agree. What do you think are some things that marketers should be either changing uh, their spend or their their budget items or or their or their ideas uh, to be more like B two C? So I, I've always been in the underdog position of brand. I've never really had a lot of brand dollars, so I had to always punch harder, right, in different areas. Um, but B two C really does. Uh, they focused on brand. It's also very memorable at the product level. Um, and they also, the one thing they do incredibly well is the messaging is so tight, you can digest it in seconds. But the other piece they do that I don't think we do well in B2C yet, or B2B, forgive me, is they know their demographic incredibly well. And we think we know our demographics, but generally we don't know our demographics, right? And that's why B2C works. That's how they're able to optimize so much, you know, whether they're selling, you know, soda or whatever it is, Right. We call it an ICP. You're like, you know, an ICP. That's not a demographic. That's, a, you know, ICP is like baby steps compared to like demographics. So I think if we could get into those areas and we could allocate dollars and understand the cost per pipe for this demographic versus this account model, and we just don't operate that way, you would see us change in a lot of different ways. The other reason why I think is because the patterns in B2B, they're conservative. You know, just they're, they're, I'm, you know, they're typically most executives in SaaS, they're men, they're a little bit older, and they come from a certain type of background in general, right? They're conservative. If you deal with people that actually come from different backgrounds, you would see, you know, you would see advertising that's a little bit different. But everything, if you look at the patterns, kind of like Instagram, everyone has a photo in Paris. Everyone has the same things, Right. <laughs> so I do think there has been some good moves towards this, but in general, it's the same group of people talking to the same group of people. What's going to happen though, with this new generation, that's not going to work anymore. Uber conference is a great example. Obviously there's other darlings in the space and meetings, but employees said, no, I'm not going to use this stuff you want. I'm going to use what I want. That's what's going to happen. So we're going to start marketing more towards these end users and they don't want to have a boring life. They don't want to look at rows and tables. They don't want to look at dashboards. They want to enjoy collaboration, productivity, interaction, gestures, emojis. They want it to, to be their life, this experience. So I'm excited about that. I don't know if I'll fully be around in marketing. I'll probably be painting paintings by then, but that's where I think it should go. Yeah. I agree. I think personalization is a huge part of this. I think, um, I think where the modern B2B or uh, excuse me, B2C marketer now has this core message for their product or their offering. It makes you feel a certain way or it makes you imagine yourself somewhere. You know, you think of the Corona ad, like I imagine myself on a beach, right? Like that's, I mean, and it's like they could they could keep running that campaign for forever. And it's like, and you just say it and you visualize. You see, I saw the line. I saw the corona. I saw the feet in the sand. Yeah. I mean, just 
Perfect. One of my my large my my marketing laments is that uh, Dos Equis killed the most interesting man in the world. I'm like, it's like the best oh. cam. It's like one of the best ad campaigns of all time. Why would you ever kill that character? I I, I don't know. I don't I, know what happened behind the scenes. But, I love it. But you're just like. I but agree. That's, again, that speaks to the what we we're talking about earlier about this idea of longevity and like having your brand mean for mean something, and having it be memorable is super important. And mean something doesn't always need to be your mission. I know a lot of times at B2B, we do talk about that stuff and your vision for the future, but it, it can just mean sitting on a beach, right? I mean, that's Maybe that's Caspian. Caspian will stand for, for sitting on a beach. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, also with that, the one, we're always trying to do too much in B2B, right? We're always trying to like, we're, we're making, you know, an Instapot stew versus what, you know, you mentioned the one Corona and that actually you know, breaking that apart in focus kind of allows that too. Yeah. So personalization is something you mentioned, you know, the, the, everybody has a picture of Paris, uh, uh, on their Instagram type stuff. But when you're selling to these folks, when you're selling B2B, when you, when you're selling enterprise product to folks like that, there are all these tactics, you know, they went to Michigan. So sending them, you know, a, a mug or I don't know, tickets to a Michigan game or one. Like, how do you think about doing those sort of things, which I think are, are still, A, they work, they're creative, they're interesting, you know, they're more commonplace now than ever before, but maybe there's tread left on those tires, maybe not. I don't know. What do you think? So, I mean, on the personalization side, it's, you know, it's something you're always striving for and you're never going to get to where you want to be, ultimately. Um, what I like to think about is, you know, on personalization, it's everything from, obviously, it could be direct mail. Um, it could be that experience on the existing web. Obviously, there's different nurtures and across the board. Uh, the one thing I've learned about personalization in these times is that the things that I thought would work aren't necessarily the things that do work. I found that in during COVID, different events where people wanted to meet a, a top barbecue chef and people wanted to do, you know, a golf, a golf swing coaching on a video conference. These things actually I thought would never be interesting, but they were some of the most popular things. So one of the things I've learned about personalizations is to really let go of what my opinion is. But in that, the challenge with marketers is we're always greedy with resources and we're always pulled in a million directions. You can almost never get where you want to get to in it. You know, probably the biggest companies can. I mean, you've had such baller marketers that have, you know, maybe hundreds and hundreds of people they get there. But in general, you're just like, you just can't get there, especially when you're trying to break out segments and personas and industries and titles. And it just, you never get to this end result. It's like, I don't play golf, but it's probably like that golf game that you can never perfect. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I, I think about constantly is just like this disease of more when it comes to marketing, where it's like this bigger campaign, more people, more people at the conference, more whatever. And you're like, like, and we deal with this a lot with our, with the podcast that we create. Cause like, if you're, if you're creating a podcast for, you know, like our, our edge computing podcast, like there's only so many people that are going to ever listen to this thing. And I would rather create the amazing thing for whatever 500 people or five people if those are the five people that you care about getting in front of, I, I always joke where people, you know, we always shame each other about how much this white paper got downloaded or this, or our event, how many people we have. And you're like, if you have a podcast that reaches seven people and it's seven fortune 10 CEOs, you probably have one of the most valuable podcasts on earth. So it's just like, those are the sort of things where I think we just get so carried away in more and bigger. Uh, me too. I, you know, it's, you have so many, you know, constituents 
and that want you to do something. And it, you have to be so careful on how you basically say no. And I struggle with this still today. The ideas are fantastic. Love the idea. Just can't do it right now. And even that is not enough for people. But then the other side is yeah. when you're dealing with an executive bench and then, uh, you know, literally the tier below them, who also is also a powerhouse, they all have amazing ideas and they're all looking at all these companies and they're like, what about this? What about this? What about this? And that's every week. So then balancing that, you've just always got to stay the course and say, this is what we're working on. This is what we're working on over and over. But I, you know, I'd love it if you could figure out how to solve that. Uh, if you got some tips, but I, I struggle with that endlessly. Yeah. So I'm curious, um, you mentioned that like you were running some campaigns. Let's just say the, the golf one is a great example, right? You don't golf. You don't care about going to a virtual swing coach. You don't care about any of that stuff, but that's something that potentially, you know, could do really, really well in front of the right audience. But if your team like doesn't have those interests, or if you have a whole team that nobody knows how to golf, how did you even think of doing that idea? What, where do those ideas come from to do those sort of a thing? It's challenging. So, you know, I spend a lot of my time uh, doing research every day. I'm always looking at every company. I actually click websites to see what their ads, their retargeting is going to be. I'm just constantly trying to borrow. Me too. Uh, that's di I'm dyslexic too. So maybe it's like the way I kind of studied through school. I don't know. But uh, the one thing that I've actually kind of prided my career on is an open space for ideas to come to the top. Um, and, you know, what I realized is that with marketers is we're all creatives and we all want to create. So if someone doesn't want to take your idea and execute on your idea, they want to bring their own ideas to the table. And generally, if you're open enough and you're allowing people to get all the dirt out on the table, over time, if you just listen, listen, the idea will pop up. And I don't know why it is, but it works that way every time. And another thing also too is, is that you can see it, almost some ideas you can see it just has a different energy when they say it. You're like, whoa, what was that? And you kind of, you just got to keep focusing on that. Like that had something to it. You know, like someone perks up and says, I've got an idea in this. And you got to respect it when they perk up and there's energy there. But from that, you're narrowing it down saying like, hey, we want to do these different things. Never would have guessed you know, a golf swing coach would be interesting via, via video mix. But, you know, you try it out, you see how people register, you see that there's a lot of interest and it's like VIPs and these things, you, you basically realize like your point of view doesn't always matter. Let's get to our next segment, the dust up. Uh-oh, here comes trouble. You may have heard that there was a dust up involving yours truly. And now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And it is getting This is where we talk about healthy tension, whether that's your, with your board, your sales team, your competitors, your CEO, or anyone else. Have you had any memorable dust-ups in your career? Like where I flipped the desk? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, too many phones. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I really think sales and marketing should always have tension. I think it's what makes you both great. I think if there's no tension there, you're probably just like a little bit of sleep at the wheel. You know, they've got to say, like, not satisfied, like, I don't have enough and I don't have the right quality. That's what you want to hear every day long, every day, all day long. And that's going to help you kind of really narrow that down. You know, the, the one I had one big conflict, which was with, uh, you know, years ago. Is that what you want to hear? My one big conflict? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, 
I had one big conflict, uh, you know, years ago with a CRO, and it was about the strategy and the approach, and I just couldn't get behind it. And what I realized in that is, I want to first say a couple things. Is one is is I was probably wrong in how I approached it in some ways. Where I was right in the outcome where it ended up, but I was wrong in how I approached it. What I mean by that is I could have let it play out and then just watched versus trying to feel like I've had to control things and it's going to affect marketing and blah, blah, blah. We get that way. You know, marketers sometimes <laughs> were more dramatic or I can be. So in that area, you know, um, the strategy, because I was so heavy in performance and metrics, I knew pretty much what the predictable outcome was. I was like, well, look, there's only this many leads. It's going to do this. You can't transform this. And it's like, it's just math, right? But, you know, you got to allow people to run their playbooks and you got to allow people to do what they want to do. And so that was a kind of a, a lesson learned. That, that was one, you know, but I'm a big believer that you have to really, you know, as a marketer, you have to be aligned with the company strategy. And one of the hardest part that I've accepted now is that I don't get to do the job I want to do. And I and it took me a long time to realize that. I'm like, wait a minute. I thought I was going to get to do all the things I wanted to do. And then you realize you're like, no, no, no. Your job is to execute on what you know the company's desiring. And that's a brutal lesson. Um, and a lot of times you don't, you know, you don't agree, but you have to have trust in your leadership team and you have to have trust in that direction that they'll make some better decisions as a collective than you would as a whole. Uh, but that's something I I really I think CMOs don't really look in the mirror and accept. They're like, no, I'm doing all this marketing. I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> you're, you're executing on the marketing. You're not, you're, you're one of the doers, but you're not doing it all. The whole company typically is. Yeah. Do you have any, uh, any favorite campaigns that you've, uh, you've run uh, Dialpad? I mean, my favorite campaign still to date, I mean, we have a, a new one out right now. I'm really excited about Work Beautifully. Um, but I, I mean, Kill the Desk Phone, it was so remarkable. Um, I've had a couple of really big ones. I thought the Kill the Desk Phone was a great campaign. You know, it was a single billboard that shook shook everything. I mean, I'd never, it was a $17,000 billboard, right? Right by the airport. And everyone was like, what is this? Um, I remember it. Yeah. I mean, it, it basically was all over the place. I did another one, which was a CRM attack, which was a, a copper. It was CRM minus the bad stuff. That was actually, it made some front pages as well. We use copper. Yeah. I mean, so like, so look, I mean, and it was also meaningful. It was heartfelt. And, but I'm really excited about this one we're, we're launching now, Work Beautifully. And one of the things I've loved about Dialpad is that, you know, they have this, the best of Google's DNA and they remove the worst, right? And they've always focused on simplicity and design and elegance. And, you know, if you speak to the team, they're like, we're not going to build 10,000 features. We're going to build 20 features really well, you know, that you love using. And so when you, you know, the culture is also about that. The culture is about helping you find your best self, helping you do the right thing, uh, helping you grow and help companies grow. Um, so I think there's a lot of powder behind that. That's just phase one of this. And we'll be landing it. We're actually landing it right now in uh, some podcasts. There's some, we're doing some stuff with Bloomberg right now, and you'll start to see it across some other media angles. Yeah. You all are heavy into AI and... Marketing AI is is truly a difficult challenge, and I'm just, you know, any 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 thoughts on just how the heck to do that? Oh wow, I can't even believe you asked that one, man. I'll, I'll just say it: this AI is scary. Anyone who says opposite is just they're believing their own hype and talking to VCs all day. AI is very scary. It's misunderstood. 
It's very difficult. It's big brother like, and but it's it's has a lot of value. And I'll just talk about how the value in communications and the value in all of us kind of working from home. But the first thing is we've got to start to market like AI is good. And what I mean by that is not company good, good for you as an individual. And simple use cases of that where AI is going, you know, we've our AI on um, our side is even more accurate than Google because it's using business language and because through meetings we've had billions and billions of minutes through it. But what happens with AI is you don't have to be in the same place in a meeting. You can miss a lot of the things and come back to it and you could see patterns. So the simplest use case is if you're a seller and you want to hear where the competition comes up. But also if you're an executive and you want to learn you know, where the most important moments are in a meeting and you just want to scan it. If you're in a car and you're like, hey, action items need to be recorded, it's going to do that for you. If you're in legal and you want an entire transcription of the meeting in, in real time, it literally will do that to a level of accuracy and blow your mind. So what I do think AI, though, it has to come down to more, how is it going to assist you in life? You know, whether you want to do a meeting while you're taking a walk versus always, you know, if we're in this kind of video-based culture. But there's also a lot of intelligence to help you become better. AI is eventually going to tell you, you know, who you interact with. And if you haven't interacted with Morgan over the last week, and you generally do, it's going to flag you. And it's also going to tell you, hey, Morgan prefers a text first. And typically when you text Morgan, you talk to him in 10 minutes. And these are the last documents you work with Morgan on. So it's also, it's just going to be like your personal assistant. And I think we also have a misconception because of the consumer world. And the consumer world's like, you have a camera in your house. Oh no, turn it off, cover it, Edward Snowden. You know, like, but it's not that scary. And it's really important for businesses to start to dive into this because it is what's going to happen. And it's really important for employees to embrace it because a lot of AI, it's in a specific vault. It's not that everyone has access to it. That's your stuff. They're not going into it and researching your stuff. That's your stuff that's specific to you. So that's one of the things that we need to demystify is that there's a personal side to it. There's obviously a team-based side if you're in sales or a real performance culture, but it's going to help you become better and it's going to coach you to have better interactions. And it, and it will do that. Yeah, I... Um... My, my wife had a had a very fun AI uh, event yesterday where she's like, oh my gosh, my phone recognized that we have a baby. And it's like, because Apple was like, Apple was like, put all of the photos of our little boy, Ben, in a folder. And it was like, here, hey, here are all the photos of Ben. And it's like things like that. I mean, I'm sure you have a thousand photos on your phone that are uncategorized. I would love to have every photo of my pops, you know, put into a folder that it's like has him in there. And like, those are the type of applications. I think you're so right that from a consumer side or, or, you know, obviously there's a scary side of that too, but the life size, like, you know, I have, I've taken, you know, tens of thousands of photos over the years that are just sitting on phones that are not categorized, that I can't search, that I can't do all this stuff with. And then you think about that from the business side and you're like, wow, what if I could get insights from the conversations I've had in Gmail? What if I can get insights from the conversations that I've had on sales calls, you know, and I could, and I could leverage that stuff. So super excited to, to follow along. Yeah, one thing on AI too, is that the, just I'll, this goes back to marketing patterns is remember we talked about everyone's kind of like the FOMO. Everyone's like, I've got AI too. Yeah. As it, this shows you marketers, right? And, and that's not their fault. They're obviously driven that way. It's like, you must have AI, you must do this. And this is kind of the challenge of us is like, we got to start to be more authentic to what we do and not BS people. 
Um, and so that's like a that huge wave everyone's doing AI is not really true. Um, but it's but that's what's out there in the market. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um it, it is it is all over the place. That's why I wanted to ask you about it. I I, I knew you had something up your sleeve. Um final question before we get into our uh uh our quick hits here. Uh how do you view your website? Wow. Um the best place to tell your story and your brand, I have to look at the most exciting part I love about the web is just performance and growth marketing, just a PLG model, um, a way to understand your users and every interaction. And it's ultimately, it has to be the number one selling tool. And I've never gotten there. I would say, you know, a good friend of mine, he's running things at Figma, Neeraj Shah is, um, he did a lot at Zendesk as well. You know, he taught me a lot because he was part of that really early crew. They were just such badasses on how they approached it. It was like the number one selling tool. And I think Salesforce eventually moved into that for them, yep. how they use some of their areas. But very few people, very few companies, literally, that's the selling tool. So compliments to that crew. But that's what I'd love to get to. And obviously, you have your e-commerce models. Um, but a lot of times, also, customers are coming back there. And it's how they engage with your, your other aspects of the content and understand that there's other value points for you because you're always going to try to grow that partnership. They're buying for what you are today, but they don't know what you're going to be tomorrow. So how do you actually take them through those journeys, which is another area we're always trying to figure out when you're going after every segment. Uh, but I really look at it into an experience, but a great place to test messaging. One, probably the best, there's two places I always test messaging. Web, you obviously do ads, so I'll throw that out the window. But actually, the other one is sales decks, but people don't know we do that. Totally. That's a great, great. They don't even know. That's a great point. It's like, where are people stopping yeah. in the slide deck? Um, yeah. Yeah, I love it. And you always see the slides at work. You go, that's it. And then you go through it over and over until you like, okay, slide one. So that worked, that worked, that doesn't work. This one, yeah. We've been trying to do that with our videos uh, lately of like, when do you look at your iPhone? <laughs> your, mm -hmm. your, whatever phone you have. You don't have to have an iPhone. Yeah, uh, it's like, iPhone. all right, that's boring. Short yeah. it down. Um, okay, let's get to our quick hits. These questions are quick and easy, just like conversational marketing with Qualified. You can go to qualified.com to learn more because Qualified prospects are on your website right now and you can talk to them quickly with Qualified quick and easy, just like these questions. Morgan, are you ready? I am ready. Let's do this. Number one, what do you do for fun? I paint. Abstract painting. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you, what, what's, what have you painted recently? Uh, I have a whole series here that's like, it's stacked up. It's a massive series. It's actually pink. Um, I'm actually, I've always loved this magenta colors, uh, but it's just an abstract series that I've been focused on. Uh, and it's pretty large scale. Yeah. So that's my jam. What would you be doing if you weren't in marketing at all? Well, I originally wanted to be a teacher. Um, I wanted to teach high school because I grew up in a I grew up in New York City and it's different high school. Um, and I wanted to kind of influence people. But I won't tell you about my positive hobbies, which would be like I'd love to own an art gallery and you know have wine parties. But um, I think right now it would probably be still still in the creative. I'd probably be doing a lot of writing. And I probably would doing some aspect of teaching, but it might be centered around marketing. You know, I think anyone can be a marketer. Anyone could be a CMO. I just set a certain goal in mind and it, it's such an adventurous career. And I'd love to show some of these people, they could get there so much faster than I did. I would just love to share that with them. What is one book or podcast or TV show that you've been checking out recently? 
Well, I, you know, this is, it's also on audio. So I, I did read David Goggins book and I listened to the book on tape. You, I just absolutely thought it was phenomenal. Um, that was actually one of the, the latest ones that I listened to. And I got really engaged into, cause I read the book and then I switched over to the audio. That was the, the last one I really enjoyed. And I thought it was, it, it resonates, you know, not just because of his background, but in his mental fortitude, but we all have a little bit of that story in us. Um, and I thought, you know, he did it himself. He wrote that book with just his author. He self-published it. I mean, it's just an incredible marketing story as well. And he refused to give the story to anyone, which I found was most interesting to a publisher. Only him, yeah. right? <laughs> would, would, not, would not do that. Yeah, of course. I, I will run the book to every single person that buys it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Morgan, it's been awesome having you on the show. Anything that we didn't ask you? Any, any final thoughts? Anything to plug here? No, I think it's been a great opportunity. I think for folks, check out Dialpad. I mean, it, we can definitely help your business, help your people, or just check us out from a marketing side and reach out and connect with me. I'm happy to talk to any marketers at any time uh, and also learn from all of you. I appreciate it. Uh, listeners, go to dialpad.com. Sweet branding on the website. Great website uh, for you to for you to cruise around. And, uh, and you are always doing cool stuff. Dialpad is always pushing the boundaries for, for marketing. So we'll be, we'll be following along. Morgan, thanks so much for, for joining. Thanks, Ian. ManGen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com, a conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B2B companies sell. Go to Qualified.com to learn more.